you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd love for you to open it with me and turn to the book of Galatians chapter 5. The book of Galatians chapter 5. As we pick up this morning where we left off last week. What a blessing the book of Galatians has been thus far. We have learned and I think solidified, crystallized in each and every one of our hearts. Just how precious the gospel of the grace of God is to the ears and the hearts and the minds of wretched sinners that are in desperate need of a Savior. (laughs) And how I hope devastating and harmful legalism is to a person's mind and heart and life. And today we're going to talk about false teachers, (laughs) judgment, and the offense of the cross. So let's read. We're going to begin reading in verse 7, but I, I want to give it its proper context. So I want us to feel it. I want us to hear it coming in the flow of the letter. This letter was written just like you would pick up a, a piece of paper to write to a friend and you're going to start with a greeting and you address the people and then you get into the body of your letter and you say what you want to say. When you come to the end, you have a closing salutation and that's exactly what Paul's 13 letters are. They are letters written from the Apostle Paul to the local churches, the most of them Gentile churches. And he has... And, and, and they're to be understood as a whole. They're to be understood in their context. As a matter of fact, the only way to properly interpret the Bible is to interpret every text in its context. And so, let's begin reading in verse 5. But just, just know that when we come to verses 7 to 12, that is, that's, our, that's our text this morning that we're going to be looking at. And I'll have to say this. Let me say this in preparation for when we get to those verses. If I were to say that Paul, by the time he gets to chapter 5, and when he when we start reading verse 7 to 12, especially the way verse 12 ends, if I were to say that Paul is angry, that would be an understatement. He is mad. He is angry at these false teachers. And he lets them know in these verses. Let's listen. Verse 5. Read along with me. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Exclamation mark. Let's pray together. Father, at the hearing of your holy word, inspired, inerrant, infallible, thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us your holy word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling us as your children, your people. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work of illumination to open our eyes to see the truth, to open our ears to the truth, to open and soften our hearts, to believe and receive and bank upon the truth of your holy word. And God, we pray this morning that you will do that work 
in our hearts. That you will do the supernatural and the powerful work that only you can do in opening blinded eyes and unstopping deaf ears and softening stony hearts. That you would do, oh God, a work in each and every life that's here today that only you can do. And a work that we would ask for if we only knew better. God, we pray that you will move. Take your holy word that you have inspired to be written and lifted, as it were, into our hearts, into our minds, into our souls, changing us forever for your glory, for our good, and for the good of future generations. We pray this by faith in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. So as you can hear in the flow of this text, Paul is continuing with the same things That really we began the letter with. He wrote this letter for one purpose. And that is to defend the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of the grace of God over against the false teaching of legalistic Judaism. He writes this letter for that purpose. And he takes chapters 1 and 2 to defend his apostolic authority to speak into the lives of these local churches authoritatively from Christ through him to them as the very word of God. He says, for example, in Galatians 1 and 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the what? In the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. He says in chapter 2, in verse 4, Yet because of, and you need to listen to this, because of false brothers. These are not true brothers. These are not Christians. He says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, he says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So in chapters 1 and 2, he defends his apostolic authority to speak On behalf of God, authoritatively into the lives of these local churches scattered out throughout the region of Galatia. And and to correct this false doctrine, this false teaching that was being propagated among them. In chapters 3 and 4 that we looked at, he defends what we've called the historic Christian doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He defends that so clearly, so emphatically, that it cannot be clearer. Chapters 3 and 4. And then as we've pointed out in chapter 5, he turns a corner to the more practical section. If this is true, then how do you live the Christian life in light of the fact that we don't have to live it according to a list of rules? In other words, we don't just simply work to modify our behavior through looking at the law and trying to modify the way that we act from the outside in, but rather because we have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we're made new creations in Christ and on the inside, God has given us new affections, new desires, new passions, a new love for God and the things of God, a love for the Word of God, a love for the mission of Christ, a love for the advancement of the gospel to the nations of the world, a a love for brothers and sisters in the church we've been made new and because we've been made new in Christ and saved in Christ and justified in Christ and and born again in Christ we live a life of faith and that life of faith expresses itself in actions of love works of love love for God and love for others and then He sort of, in the first six verses that we looked at two weeks ago of chapter 5, he really delineates what is, again, so negative about legalistic Judaism. Which, by the way, let me just remind 
us what that is. Legalistic Judaism is an approach, or rather it is a belief, that a person is justified, saved, in the sight of God, accepted by God, on the basis of their law-keeping. Do this, God will love you. Do this, God will accept you. Do this, you can be justified. That's Judaism. That's law-keeping. That's a system of religious works and rituals and ceremonies that if you perform it, you expect and believe that you will earn your salvation. That's legalism. Now, Paul says that if you seek to earn God's favor, to earn your salvation through the performance of the law, then the work of Christ has no effect on you at all. That's what we read in verse 2 of chapter 5. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You're cut off from Christ. If you would be justified by the law. And so he comes down here in our text this morning in verses 7 to 12. And he is angry that these false teachers are spreading such terrible heresy and false doctrine among these people. Because he knows what is at stake. So let me take just a moment with that little bit of an introduction. And share with you six observations from these verses For, I hope, our edification to build us up and to teach us. Number one, think with me for just a moment in verse 7 about the snare of legalism. Okay? The snare of legalism. Look at it again in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The picture is one of a runner. You all have witnessed or maybe participated In running a race. It's the same picture that the writer of the book of Hebrews picks up in Hebrews chapter 12. A runner running a race. And he says, you began to run. And this is just a picture of living the Christian life. You began to live a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, Spirit-displaying, Gospel-advancing life. You began to run well, but something, someone has hindered you. Someone has put a stumbling block in front of you. There's been a snare placed in front of the path of the runner, and now he or she is thrown off track. You've gotten off track. You've gotten off course. You were running well, verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth. Something happened. They ran into a snare, a stumbling block, a diversion from the path. And the path is the pathway of, listen, truth. The pathway of truth. And this morning, it is so easy, is it not? To fall into legalistic patterns of behavior. It really is. We've talked about this before. It's, it, it's especially seems to be a part of the fallen nature of sin that we would, we feel like that we have to seek to accomplish something that will earn our favor in the sight of God. So, I know that I'm a sinner, and so what I need to do is to do better. And if I do better, God will love me. And if I don't do better, God will not love me. And that could not be further from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the good news from God. The good news from God has never been nor ever will be do better. The good news from God is that Christ came into the world and did better. He did perfectly. And he went to the cross to die for your imperfections and your sins. And he arose from the grave and ascended into heaven. And if you today will by faith believe and bank and trust in him alone, you will be forgiven You will be accepted. You will be justified in the sight of God. And so the snare of legalistic behavior. It's so easy to fall into these traps. Because 
According to this verse, there is a snare or there is someone. He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who was it? And here the question is not posed like, I want to know his name. But the question is, who did you allow? Who did you permit? Who is this that you would permit to throw such a stumbling block, to throw such a snare in front of your feet? Who is it that you would allow and permit to do such a thing and hinder you from obeying the truth? Because, beloved, there is a way, and you all know this is true, there is a way to walk and live that either is in alignment with what you say, or there's a way you can live that is different than what you say. You know what I'm talking about? So, in other words, the actions of the life either align with what you're saying, with what you're preaching, with what you say you believe, or the actions of your life don't line up, and we call that hypocrisy. So, these men had become a stumbling block. They had become a hindrance to, listen, the truth. What is at stake in this letter Is biblical truth. And what is at stake. Is the heart of the truth. Of the entire Bible. The truth of the gospel. The truth of the good news. From God. Concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. They started off in the truth. They were in danger now. Of living in a way. That is contradictory to the truth. They were in danger. If not already. Some of them living in a way. That was detracting. From the advancement of the truth. Of the gospel into the world. And therefore they would become. A stumbling block. For people to be saved. That is at the heart of it. See the truth of salvation. The truth of the gospel. Was at stake. We read from Galatians chapter 1 verse 6. I read it again. He says I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Who called you in the grace of Christ. And turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you. We read there in chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. Now listen to what he says in verse 5 again. To those Judaizers. To those legalistic Judaizers. Verse 5. Chapter 2 verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Now he says why that he doesn't yield in submission. So that. What does it say there? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The truth of the gospel and that advancement for future generations is directly connected not only to what we say, but how we live the Christian life. And it's so easy, beloved, for us to fall into patterns of legalistic of a legalistic approach to the Christian life. And if we do, it detracts from the message of grace that we preach. Look over in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6 that we talked about there earlier. What is at stake is the work of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, what did he accomplish? Let me ask you this. Was the work of Christ When he died on the cross, was it full and sufficient to save sinners? Well, that's what he's saying. What is at stake in the way that you approach living the Christian life? If you approach it legalistically, like I've got to add to the work, then you are detracting from the full sufficiency of the work of Jesus. And so he says that this is a great snare. So in this first observation, think with me about the reality that we can live in a way that is either consistent with the truth of the gospel and displays and propels the truth into the world, or we can live, we can live in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel and hinders the spread of truth in the world. Because if I say, you can be saved, you can be forgiven, You can be justified and that eternally in the sight of God if you will trust in Christ alone and look away from your personal performance and believe upon Him and you say, that's great news. And then the next day you get up and to live the Christian life, you look to yourself and the energy of the flesh 
in order to try to, by observance of, well, let me look at the list of the rules. Don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. And try to conform myself to that. That takes away from the spread of the truth of the gospel, which says it's not about you, it's about him. And what we need to do, like we ended last week, is not look to the list and try to just conform our outward behaviors to the list. But we need to look to Jesus. We need to look to God. And when we see God in His glory and beauty and power and wisdom, then we are radically transformed from the inside out. And now we have new affections. We have new passions. We have new loves. And we live accordingly. And that's two different lives. And that's two different principles at work. That's number one. Number two. The second thing in verse 8 to observe is the fact that this is not only inconsistent with the truth, which we just talked about from verse 1 or verse 7, but it's also inconsistent with God's call through the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 8. This persuasion, This persuasion, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion, where you started trying to live according to the the, uh, Judaistic law that God gave to the people of Israel uh, through Moses, this persuasion is not from Him who calls you. In other words, the God who called you, chapter chapter 1, verse 6, the one who called you in the grace of Christ... This is not consistent with the one who called you in that grace. Does that make sense? It's not consistent to say that God has called you out of darkness into into the light. That God has called you from death to life. That God has called you from unrighteousness and made you righteous in Christ by grace through faith alone in the work of Christ alone. It's not consistent with that God who called you that way if now you have to keep yourself saved and solidify yourself as righteous in the sight of God through the observance of the Mosaic law. It's not consistent. You don't call people, God doesn't call people into that life and light and joy and freedom and then turn around and say, but that work of Christ is insufficient. You need to add to it with your little bit of works. But rather, he believes and has full confidence in the work of God, in the work of God, he says in verse nine, so that's very quick on the second one, which is just an observation of the fact that it's inconsistent with God's call. If God calls you in grace, unmerited, unearned favor that was purchased by Jesus through his substitutionary death on the cross after he lived a perfectly obedient life, if his righteousness is yours, if his death counts for your sins and you're free, totally free and forgiven in Christ alone, then it would be inconsistent for you to try to maintain that position of acceptance through your personal performance. That's observation two. Observation three is that legalism is pervasive. Pervasive. Legalism is pervasive. Legalism is not something, have you ever taken a little droplet, maybe say of some food coloring, say you took some uh, real dark black food coloring and dropped it into say a little cup of water. What happens to the water? It turns black. It turns dark. It it has a way of pervasively permeating the whole. If you look in verse 9, that's what he's talking about. He says, a little leaven, the leaven of legalism, leavens the whole lump. You cannot, as we've learned time and time again in this book, you cannot mix Law-keeping justification, law-keeping righteousness, and true righteousness from God, which is by faith in Christ alone. They do not mix. If you add one half of one of your good works to the work of Christ, 
in order to be just or saved and accepted in the sight of God, Paul says, you have destroyed and fully corrupted grace. It is no longer grace. And now you're saved on the basis of what you have done. And you can pat yourself on the back for that. And that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Legalism has a way of taking over, Paul says. They're like oil and water. They do not mix. Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Romans 11, verse 6. We've looked at this before. I bring it to your attention again. It is so pointed, so clear. Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of what? Can you get any clearer than that, beloved? If it is on the basis, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, listen, grace would no longer be grace. Grace is unmerited, unearned favor in the sight of God that was purchased for you in Christ and through Christ. And if I come to God and I pull out of my pocket one of my works and put it on the plate, say, here, look at what I've done. You, you and, and say, won't you accept me on the basis of that? Paul says, it is, you just destroyed grace. It's no longer grace. It's on the basis of works. Now, heaven, eternal life, and forgiveness is what God owes you. As a matter of your performance, you've worked and you've earned the paycheck and so you get it. And Paul says repeatedly and constantly in the book of Galatians that we will not be justified and accepted in that way. Galatians 2 verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But it is pervasive. And so, beloved, we must beware of false teaching. We must beware of how pervasive and permeating and how infectious false teaching is I can't express that enough it's so dangerous you have to understand that if a person believes if, if, if I ask you you stand before God right now and Jesus looks at you and says how What makes you think that you're going to be accepted into my holy heaven? And you look back at Jesus and you say, because I've tried to be a good person. Paul says, you're going straight to hell. But if you look back at him and you say, you see those nail scars on your hands and your feet. I believe that I'm going to be accepted in your holy heaven on the basis of what you did for me on the cross. Then he'll say, come on in. Come on in. It's a matter of life and death. And Jesus himself warned his disciples about false teaching. And he warned them about specifically the leaven of hypocrisy. And those who would seek to be righteous through their works. He says in Matthew 16. If you want to turn. In verse 6. Matthew 16 verse 6. Jesus says. To them, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. These were the religious leaders. These were the ones who saw themselves as righteous because, first of all, they were ethnic Jews. Secondly, because they were people that saw themselves as observing the law. And therefore, they felt that they were established in a, listen, self-righteousness, which the Bible repeatedly says we cannot do because we are sinful and God is holy. So Jesus says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then if you look down, as he began to teach them about this, they were all confused and thought that it was because they didn't bring any bread on the scene. And he comes down to verse 12 and he says, 
that after he taught them about it, you know, in clarity, verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, listen, but of the what? Teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was about the false teaching that he warned them. If you were to turn over to the book of Luke chapter 12, and Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, Jesus again is teaching and he says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say this to his disciples first. This is Luke 1, 12, 1. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And then he tells us what it is, which is hypocrisy. Because my friends, listen, to pretend, and that's all that can ever be, that you are righteous in and of yourself is to live the life of a hypocrite. Because you're not. <laughs> now, people work really hard to try to convince themselves and others that they are. But the truth of the reality and the convicting power of God, the Holy Spirit, is to reveal the exact opposite. Namely, that we are not self-righteous in and of ourselves, and we are under the just wrath of God, and therefore in need of a Savior. Second Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter as well. And he warns Timothy and us in Second Timothy 4 about the coming times ahead, which we are living in. Where false teaching will abound and we're living, oh my, in those perilous times. He says in Second Timothy 4, 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the myths. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? False teachers did. Who are preaching a self-righteous, works-based justification approach to Christianity, which is not Christianity at all. That's observation number three. Number four. Back to our text in Galatians 5. The fourth observation here. At the beginning of verse 10 is confidence in the power and faithfulness of God. Confidence in the power. And faithfulness of God. Look at verse 10 if you would. He says. Now he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 9. Verse 10. I have confidence. In the Lord. That you will take no other view. I have confidence. Where is Paul's confidence? In the Lord. <laughs> His confidence is not in them. But his confidence that they will, listen, receive this letter, read it together as a church, just like I prayed for us this morning, that the God who began the work in them would continue the work in them. And the God who gave him the doctrine, the God who gave him the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the grace of God, that God who worked in them mightily when they first heard it, would persuade them and teach them so that they would accept no other thing than the truth and they would reject the false teaching of legalistic Judaism. His confidence, beloved, is in the God who is faithful to bring them into a deep conviction of the truth of the grace of God, which is received by faith through Christ alone. That Quote that I gave you just a moment ago, by the way, is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You probably remember it. Philippians 1, 6, which simply says, Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, And I am sure of this, that he which or who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began the work will finish the work. If you start it, <laughs> then you got to finish it. But if he starts it, then he will finish it. It's exactly what the writer that comes to my mind uh, in the book of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, therefore, this is 12.1, Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside the weight of sin. And here's that runner. Lay aside the weight of sin 
that cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? By looking to ourselves? No. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The King James says the looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the founder and perfecter, the one who started it, the one who began the good work in you will complete that work. The confidence that Paul has that he is writing here as an instrument of grace. He writes in chapter one at the beginning, grace to you in verse three. Uh, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter is coming as a means of grace in the life of the church. So that through the word of God, through the apostle, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will be persuaded to abide in the truth and to reject the false teaching. He has confidence. Remember in chapter 3, verse 3 of Galatians. Listen to what he says, I remind you. Galatians 3, 3. It's talking about when they, when Paul and his, and the missionary team first came and preached the gospel. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See what he's saying? Same thing he's saying over here in chapter 5. You began by the Spirit. You began in the truth. You've been hindered here a little bit, but I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded. That the God, that God, the Holy Spirit, who worked so powerfully in their lives when he preached the gospel. Remember what he says to them, though, over there in uh, chapter 4. And he says, uh, he says in, in, in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, What has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. <laughs> So he's saying to them, you began in the truth. You began by the power of the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have confidence that God's going to take this truth that I've written to you and persuade you and make it so clear in your life that you will not abide in the false teaching. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Listen to how he words it. The confidence, listen, that I'm going to be a Christian tomorrow. And I hope this comes to you as good news. The confidence that I have that tomorrow I'll wake up and be a Christian is not confidence in myself. But confidence in the one who began the work in me. Listen to the way Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then listen. Verse 24. He who calls you is what? Faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful. That's number four, number five. At the second part of verse 10. Judgment is coming. For false teachers. You know, this is a very fearful thing that I do every Sunday. My friends, when you, when you attempt to speak on behalf of God, it is risky. Because we will give an account for what we teach. We will give an account of what we say and how we testify about God. We will give an account. And these are false brothers. Remember we read from chapter 2 there and verse 4 that they were false brothers. Well, in chapter 5 and verse 10, the second part, he says, first of all, that he has confidence in the Lord, that they will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Judgment is coming for false teachers. The ones that are sowing the seeds of discord, the ones that are sowing the seeds of legalism in the life of the churches, the ones that are propagating a false gospel, not testifying, not proclaiming the truth from God as he has given it, but changing it, altering it, and maligning it with their own ideas, they will stand in judgment before God. And the New Testament and the Old Testament is full of this reality. So let us look 
at some of the sobering realities of the word of God. They had become stumbling blocks for those who were seeking to live a God-honoring, Christ-exalting life. You were running well, someone hindered you, and whoever that is, they're going to give an account. They will bear the penalty. Jesus talked about this, didn't he? In Mark chapter 9, verse 42, he says, listen, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and that word in the Greek sin right there is the word to stumble. Whoever causes one of these who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's what Jesus says about false teachers. Did you know that the little book of Jude is primarily written for that purpose? To warn us of the serious reality and coming judgment for false teachers. This is, I'm not even going to try to add to this. I just want to read it to you. And listen to how sobering this is. Jude, it's right before the book of Revelation, by the way. Jude, and we'll just skip the little introduction there, verses 1 and 2, and go to verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the common salvation... Our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And here's where he begins. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation. That's a a sentence from the judge. Ungodly people. Who pervert. Guess what they pervert. Who pervert the grace of. Of our God. Into sensuality. And deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same thing Paul is saying in the book of Galatians. If you are seeking to be saved. Through law keeping. You are severed from Christ. You are in essence and in lifestyle. Denying the sufficiency of Christ. To save sinners. And Jude says, deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, he says, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay in their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil as disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. Woe to them. For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And all of these I could talk about. You've got preachers preaching today so that they can fill their pockets with money. That was the sin and the problem of Balaam. He was a hired false prophet. These, he says, verse 12, are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. 
It was about these that Enoch, the seventh son from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. What? To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own godly passions. Their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The whole book of Jude is written so that people will contend against false teachers and so that we would know that false teachers are going to swiftly face judgment one more second peter second peter chapter 2 verses 1 and following listen to this verse 1 but false prophets also arose among the people listen just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them same thing Denying the one who is all sufficient to save to the uttermost those who will believe. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. And listen, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Judgment is coming for false teachers. And finally, in closing, number six, the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross. Galatians 5, verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? And then listen to what he says. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. My friends, today, nothing is more offensive to this world of self-righteous, self-justifying hearts and minds than the gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) The gospel of the grace of God that comes to sinners not by anything that they have done is offensive to people who are trusting in themselves. If I'm trusting in myself... And believing that I am going to earn acceptance in the sight of a holy God. The gospel comes and tells me that nothing that I am doing is going to help me be saved and accepted. It's offensive. First Peter chapter 2 verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe. He says this. Listen. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of what? Offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The work of the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive to people who are self-reliant and self-justifying. It is offensive, beloved, to the secular humanist. When the declaration is made from God through Christ in the gospel that people in and of themselves are depraved sinners and under the just wrath of God and there's absolutely nothing that you can do to save yourself. That is offensive to the secular humanist. It is offensive to the legalist, whether it's legalistic Judaism or any kind, any other world religion. That seeks through the ceremony and the the ordinances and the list of rules of do's and don'ts to be justified and obtain a self-righteousness in the sight of God. The gospel of the grace of God in Christ is offensive to them. But Jesus said in John fourteen six that I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. The apostle said in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved than at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no way for us to have confidence, beloved, that we are just in the sight of God apart from trusting in the finished work of the cross of Christ. And that's why Paul says in chapter 6 and verse 14 of Galatians, but far be it from me to boast. He's not going to boast in anything but this. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's the one who there on the cross purchased our salvation. Fully, completely, nothing to be added to it, nothing to be taken away from it. Jesus, when he died on the cross, said even aloud, it is finished. It's finished. And if you're trusting in the finished work of that Savior on the cross, then you have all the confidence in in the world that you are saved and justified and accepted in the sight of God. But if you reject that work, depending on yourself or any other thing, as a means of salvation and acceptance in the sight of God, that according to the authority of God's word, you have no hope in this world. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for your holy word and your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Those that are lost are found. Those that are blind can see. Those that are deaf can hear. Those that are lame can walk. Those, oh God, who are dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ. For it is by grace that we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Oh God, thank you this morning for the truth of the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and dying on the cross and arising from the grave, ascending into heaven and the promise of a sure return. Thank you, oh God, for your amazing grace. Now, Lord, I pray that you will solidify in our hearts and our minds today this truth. Lord, that we would be able to live accordingly, that we would walk and run in a way that is consistent, and one in a way that promotes the truth that we believe and have clearly understood today. And if there's one lost and undone at this moment, we pray for them that you would call them and draw them and woo them with your love and your grace and your mercy, that they would repent and turn away from sin and trust in the finished work of Christ In Christ alone, call upon his holy name that they may be saved. And we pray in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.